Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Ben Carlson, director at Ritholtz Wealth. We start the conversation with Ben around content, given he's perhaps one of the most widely read investment bloggers on the internet. We talk about his writing process and how he's maintained a focus and commitment to making finance understandable through the posts on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. We then get into the markets and get his take on inflation, bear markets, housing, and more. We wrap up with some important investing lessons. And as you'll see, Ben maintains a very thoughtful, rational, and humble approach to how he views the markets. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Ben Carlson of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Just one more thing before we start. Excess Returns has been growing a lot recently, and all of that is a result of the support from our loyal listeners and viewers. We just want to thank everyone who's taken the time to listen to us and for supporting us and allowing us to continue to reach more and more investors. If you have a minute to do it, we would ask one favor of you. If you have benefited from the podcast and could take the time to subscribe on YouTube or your preferred audio platform and to write a review, that would be greatly appreciated. Both are a big part of expanding the podcast and will allow us to continue to get great guests. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hi, Ben. How are you? Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks for joining us. We're excited for this conversation today. Um, so we're going to kind of chunk this out into three different parts. We're going to do sort of content, talk about your blog, um, how far you've come with your blog, talk about sort of investing in the economy and the markets, and then sort of wrap up with, um, I guess, like lessons learned and, and thing, things like that. But, but I, I, I guess to start, um, and then this is going to probably sound really cheesy, but I, we are huge fans of your blog and um, the writing that you do. Um, so anyone listening to this, we highly encourage you go to a wealth of common sense and subscribe to Ben's, uh, uh, newsletter, um, because it's excellent. It's topical. It's digestible. He's consistent, uses data and sort of a long-term orientation with, um, the things that he's talking about. And what I would also say, and one of the reasons I personally believe that you and your colleagues at Ritholtz have had so much success is because of the authenticity of what you guys, who you guys are and how that comes across in the writing and the things that you do. So um, congratulations to you guys. And we're, we're big fans over here. It's weird because if you would have told me 10 years ago that I'd be producing content on the internet and that'd be a big part of my, my everyday job, I would have said you're crazy because I kind of did it on a whim. It wasn't like I had a big master plan. Like I'm going to start this blog and that's going to lead to, uh, me working at a different firm. It was more or less, I was just kind of bored. I was getting my MBA and I had a guy in one of my classes who was, who had a blog and he said, Hey, check this out. I have a blog. And I kind of thought I could do that. I could write about finance. And he showed me how to, how to make a website. And this is back before it was, it was really easy. There was no Substack or anything. And he helped me with WordPress, you know, put a few things in and put a header on and and just go to town and I did it with no expectations. And so the, the fact that it, it's led to some of the things that it's led to was surprising to me. And I think one of the reasons that it did kind of last a while is because I, I didn't go into the expectations. Because I know a lot of people these days say, I'm going to come in and I'm going to have a content strategy and get a big audience. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And some people certainly can do those kind of things, but that was never really my MO at the time. It was just kind of, I, I was a little bored at work and looking for something new to think about and, and put, put myself out there a little bit. And it just sort of happened. Yeah. And the one thing I would say is I went back to your very first post. Cause I, I was curious myself. I'm like, how long has he been doing this? I thought actually you had been doing it a little bit longer. You've done it a long time. You started, I think of February, 2013 was your very first. Yep. Coming up on uh, 10 years now. 
which is kind of crazy. And what was cool in that is you, 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 you know, you talked about your upbringing, your parents and how you had, you know, good guidance from them. And that played an important role in your overall financial habits. But I just think the mission that you laid out 10 years ago, you're still actually executing on that. And that's very unique because I could see how it'd be hard to like drift over time. Yeah, I, I basically started writing for my friends and family because those are the only people that were reading at the beginning, probably the, for, for the first, I don't know, 12 months or so. And that's one of the reasons I started it is because I would have friends and family come up to me all the time. Hey, you're the investment guy. I have a question about the market or my finances. And I thought, I'm sick of answering these questions. I'm just going to start a blog and I'll put, I'll put your email on it and you can read and, and I'll write stuff that's, that's geared towards that audience. And the, the surprising thing to me was after about a year, I started getting questions from people in the investment industry saying, hey, I like the way that you laid this out. Can I share this with my clients? And I never thought of it because I, I worked in the institutional space. I was working with like endowments and foundations. I wasn't in wealth management with families or individuals. I was working in a totally different space and didn't, wasn't really taking on clients, right? I worked for an investment office that managed money for a wealthy family. And that was our only, we had one client. And so it was kind of surprising to me that advisors were saying, you know, we're having a hard time explaining what's going on in the markets or explaining these concepts in a simple way. And you seem to be doing that. And it's not like I, I had this master plan to do that. I was literally trying to explain complex stuff to people who aren't in the world of finance. And the, the light bulb moment for me was, oh, wait, all the clients that these people have, they're not in the world of finance either. And I think that's, that's one of the funny things about this, this industry is that there's so many people that, that try to impress you and, and talk and use jargon and, and make things so complex. But they don't realize that like their clients, most of the clients don't want that. Like they want it to be simplified. And that was to me like, oh, actually this, this kind of makes sense. I kind of fell backwards into this thing without even realizing it. I was going to say, there's a couple of different things there. I mean, what, one, why do you think in finance, we tend to overcomplicate it? Are we just trying to substantiate the high amount of fees that we're being paid? Or is it just, we're not good communicators or what? I mean, what, what do you, why do you think this? So I, I don't know where this one came from, but there's a story about uh, like a locksmith apprentice and. He's learning the trade from a, from a master locksmith, how to pick locks, right? So people would call him and come, you know, I locked my keys in my car, come help me. I locked, I, I got locked out of my house, come help me. And the guy would come with all his tools and it would take him like a half hour to pick the locks, right? He's using all these different tools and he's getting at different angles. And by the time he's done, he's all sweaty. And the people thought like, wow, this guy put a lot of work in. And they gave him a huge tip because like this guy obviously did his work. Then as he got better and he went along, it didn't take him as long because he learned the tricks of the trade and he could get to a lock and he knew exactly what tools to use right away. And he'd put it in and he'd turn it and it would open in a minute and he got stopped getting tips. And the people thought like, that's easy. This guy, you know, it's, it's easy. Anyone can do this. And it's, it's, it's the opposite, right? So I think people in the world of finance assume that like more effort means better results. And in some areas of life, that's true, but in most areas of it, but in, in finance, that's not necessarily the case where doing more actually helps you. And in a lot of cases doing nothing is the right thing to do most of the time in the world of finance. But if you're being paid by clients, you, you can't just sit on your hands all the time because it looks like you're not helping or doing anything. By the way, when you get this huge um, influx of subscribers uh, because you've appeared in our podcast, uh, you'll know where they came from. Give them the side. But where, um, was there a tipping point after the block? Was there like a tipping point for you where it went from, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred people reading or maybe a, maybe a thousand to, you really saw the hockey stick sort of growth in terms of traffic and subscribers. I think it was, it was slowly, but surely. I think the biggest thing for me was 
I reached out, I, like the reason I got into blogging in the first place is I, I started reading other people's blogs. Like I was, after the global financial crisis, I was trying to figure out what happened because the mainstream sources of news weren't really explaining to me. So I kind of stumbled into blogs. So I was reading Barry Ritholtz and Josh Brown and Todd Harrison and Doug Cass and these guys who'd been doing it for a long time. And, and so that kind of got me interested in it. And, and I think part of the thing that helped me was that I reached out to some people and they, they already had big audiences. And, and so Josh Brown was one of the first ones that really I kind of sent his, him some stuff and said, hey, I like the way you're thinking. Here's something that I wrote. Maybe you'd find this interesting. And to my surprise, Josh wrote me back right away and said, I love this. And he started sharing. And then Tata Fiscanta, who has Abnormal Returns, who shares all the best in blogging and financial media every single day, he started linking. And so it was these places that had bigger audiences that started linking to me. And that, that's when I thought like, okay, I've kind of made it. These, these people who I respect their opinions, they're sharing my stuff with their audiences and their audiences are much bigger. And that sort of helped it grow. I, I don't remember exactly when that happened, but it, it took, you know, a good 12 to 18 months probably. And you know, when you first start out with this stuff, at least I did back in the day, you're checking the traffic stuff every day, right? You're, and, and it's, it's very slow and middling and nothing happens. And, and, and you, you look at this stuff all the time because you want to see that growth. And, and yeah, it took a long time and, and a lot of consistency for it to happen. Yeah, definitely. Uh, with content, it's like a long-term compounding thing. It's not like you just start writing and, you know, people are reading. It takes time. It takes people sharing it. You know, links back to the, to, to the articles are very important. I love Tadas' stuff. It's one of the emails I basically don't delete um, uh, each day because there's so many good things he's highlighting in there. Um, could I want to ask you about sort of your writing process a little bit. And you know, how do you, I mean, one, you're writing every day, um, even on Saturday and Sunday, correct? Yeah, pretty. I, I like to write a little bit every day, yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, where, I mean, do, they, do, they, do the ideas come to you just easily and naturally? Um, or how is your sourcing of ideas? I guess that's the first question. And, and then one, like, how have you, how would you say you're writing has changed over time and what could like a younger writer maybe learn from, I don't know, maybe some of the hacks or some of the improvements you've made in your process. Well, you mentioned going back and reading the first post. If I go back and read old stuff I wrote at the beginning, I, I kind of cringe because I can see that I've, I've improved over the time, but I, you probably say the same thing five years from now. I think the biggest thing for me for writing consistently, I, I just have to do it because th there's a, there's an old quote that's, I can't remember who said this, but I, I steal it from Barry Hills all the time. It's like, I write to learn what it is I think. And so I think I'm just a naturally curious person. And, and part of that is because when I came into the investment world, I didn't know anything. I came in with a clean slate. I was never one of these people that like my dad put a Barron's in my hands when I was nine years old and I'm picking stocks with him and reading the Wall Street Journal. That was never me, right? I, I had way too much fun in college. I didn't know what I want to do. It got to like my senior year and I realized like, oh shit, I have to do something with my life. What am I going to do here? And I got into the investment industry kind of backed into it through an internship and found a job. And then I got into the industry and realized like, oh, these people know way more than I do. I have to, I have a lot of catching up to do. And it was like, I, I probably should have learned a little more in college and now I need to like catch up. And so I, I just read everything I could. Every person I saw, I'd ask, what are your two or three favorite investment books? Because this is before blogs were big. This is the early 2000s, before blogs were big, before podcasts were here. So I just, I read a bunch of books and I went through the CFA program and I, I went on kind of a journey of self-study so I think I'm naturally curious. So I think that helps. I think you also need to have a sort of worldview about how things generally work. You have to have like an overarching philosophy. So I, I have this general, you, you mentioned the philosophy is pretty similar for me. It hasn't really changed that much. I'm sure there's been some things I've updated my, my priors on, but the overarching philosophy is similar. And I think what you do then is you take that overarching philosophy and 
you input it into what's going on today in the markets, right? And you kind of talk about it through the lens of here's what's going on and here's how my philosophy sees this as these things are changing because the building blocks of, of I think, personal finance and investing, if you have a overarching philosophy, they shouldn't really change all that much over time, right? The markets are going to change. Cycles are going to be different. You're going to be at different places in the environment, whether it's the economy or the markets, but that most of the stuff is the building blocks are going to be pretty similar. So I think it's just taking that stuff. I'm not trying to like reinvent the wheel. A lot of times I'm borrowing from other people if they've created a chart or a data point or research. So I'm constantly reading and not trying to come up with, with unique thoughts all the time. It's kind of, here's what's going on. Here's my opinion about it. And here's how my worldview fits what's going on right now. With respect to your process, some writers we've talked to have, will say like, all right, I set aside an hour every day and, you know, whether I have any, any ideas or not, I'm just going to force myself to write. And then other people say, you know, it just comes to me. Like if it comes to me at 730 at night, I just start writing. Like, how do you think about that? Like how your writing process works? Yeah, mine, mine's probably a little bit of both. I do like to write a little bit every day, but it's not like I say every day from 815 to 915, I'm writing. It is kind of the, the thoughts come and go. And I think part of it for me is like getting away too. Uh, I, I, I'm a big runner. So I go jogging four or five times a week. And I find I get some of my best thinking done then when I can kind of get away from the screens and get away from the Twitter and the news and all this stuff and just think a little bit. And and so that's almost my kind of meditation period where I can kind of just be out there and, and thinking about this stuff. So I, I do like to write a little bit every day, but I, I also, there, if you looked in my blog folder on WordPress, I probably have like 300 drafts that have never been published. Stuff that I started writing and it just, I, it never came fully formed. It, it, I never got to a good conclusion. I never got to the right place where I wanted to get it. And I just kind of left it in the, in the draft folder and should probably delete some of those. But yeah, I do think that writing is, is like this, this muscle that you can, you can do it a little bit over time and get better in practice. I was never like a, a, a born writer where like in, in high school and college and when I was in school that I, I loved to write papers and stuff. I, I didn't at all. I was not a big writer at all. I actually didn't like reading that much. It wasn't until I found a subject that I enjoyed, like the markets and like finance and the psychology behind it, that I thought, oh, if I found this topic I actually enjoy and like to write about, I can actually, I can do it more. And the, the more I wrote, the more I wanted to write even more because I found it was like a very cathartic process to get my points across because it helped me think through the things that are all jumbled up in my head. Yeah, it's funny, like, you know, in, in reference to like taking the walks, it's the same thing Morgan Housel talks about a lot. Like he, people ask him like, what, what is his process? And he talks a lot about just taking walks and just thinking. And, you know, that's a huge part of, of do what he does before he ever gets anything like written down. So I think that's probably common among a lot of writers. Yeah, I, I think if you're just sitting there staring at stuff all day and it, it, it's hard to detach yourself from what's going on in the immediate time right now. And I, I do always try to bring a lot of my stuff back to, I'm talking about stuff that's happening in the short term, but I like to bring it back to the long term, as you mentioned, Justin, because that, that's just sort of my overarching philosophy. So a lot of it comes down to thinking of new and different ways to say something that's probably already been said before a million times. You just you just think of a different way to get people to understand it or, or relate to it. I want to switch and talk about podcasting, the other the other part of what you do on the content side, because when Justin and I originally started this, it actually the, sort of the inspiration from it came from you guys, because you guys had sort of talked at the beginning of Animal Spirits how, well, we were talking on the phone all the time, so we might as well just record it. And we're like, oh, we're talking on the phone all the time too, so we'll just go ahead and record that. And we learned very quickly how hard it is to do. That like the, the great, you know, conversations you guys are having, like for us, it's not like we could just jump on and just do it. So I'm, I'm wondering like what your lessons are from, from podcasting. I don't know, you guys have been doing it for at least a few years. What have been your biggest lessons from podcasting? I think five years. And to be honest, it was the same thing for us. I, I think some people are just natural talkers and, and natural salespeople. Uh, like we work with Josh and Barry, those two are just naturals at, at talking and they're, they're gregarious and they're, 
their their personalities are it's easy for them you know not to say they're not working hard but that that part of their personality for michael and i it was never like that we we wanted to do that because we thought our conversations were good because we were i I live in michigan and he lives in new york we were sharing all this stuff uh about the markets and about our lives back and forth all the time and we thought oh this would be kind of interesting as a as a forum to to talk about what's going on and and, and it was hard for us because you kind of hit that record button for the first time and you go, oh, wait a minute. It gave me a lot more respect for like radio DJs, like people that can get on and just talk and just by themselves. I have so much respect for because it's not easy. It's a totally different ballgame than a blog post that you can kind of create and craft and use the right words and perfect phrasing. It's different to have more conversational tone. And, and we just like the blog, I have all these drafts I never used. I think we did five or six podcasts where our, our producer for the podcast actually said, let's do a few trial runs and see how it goes. And the first time we hit record, when you see that red button go on, we both kind of froze and, and it was it was herky-jerky and it was awkward. And I'm sure that a few of the early podcasts are like that where you have to, another thing you have to kind of practice and get better at. And I think that's something that we've worked on and, and it certainly wasn't natural to us at all. It's 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 difficult kind of, it's a totally different ball game, the, the whole communicating and using your words versus writing. And the, the thing that we, I think, learned from that that we, we kind of underestimated is is how much more your audience will relate to you because you're it's so much easier to see your personality when you're just when people hear you versus when you're writing something right I think you can you can create almost a, a different version of yourself when you're writing because you can use different words and phrasing and it, it's not necessarily if you're talking it's it, it's kind of you and your personality and people people get that and I think one of the things that's helped us with the podcast is is that we share a personality and also a little bit of our personal lives about who we are and the stuff we like and enjoy. And it's, it's not just dry finance all the time. It's, it's, it's us and whether you like it or not, it's, it's kind of who we are. And so that, that was a big surprise to us that looking back and now it seems obvious, but, but people, you know, generally like to consume content from people that they like and respect or trust or, or just find entertaining. And, uh, but yeah, that was another thing that we had to work at it a lot. It, it was not easy for us, just like it was for you. Yeah, we've, we've struggled as well. And, you know, one of the things I've kind of learned over time with this is, you know, with writing, I tend to like want it to be perfect. I want, you know, everything to be grammatically correct. Like people don't expect that on like audio and video. You know, if you say, you know, or um, I mean, no one really cares. Like at the beginning, you're trying to like do it perfectly, but you realize over time that no one really cares about that. It's like you said, it's more about being you. And people are fine, you know, if it's not perfectly delivered, you know, with video and audio. Yeah. And there, there are some, everyone has their own verbal tics or things that they do or say. And the bigger your audience gets, the more people will point those out. <laughs> you, you do get a little uh, sensitive to some of those things and you try to fix them. But some of them, it's kind of like, this, this is who I am. So it's, it's basically like it or not. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun because we, you know, you grow an audience and people kind of get to understand you and know you and, and, and get on the same inside jokes as you and, and, and yeah, it, it, the the podcast thing to us again, we kind of went in with little expectations. We didn't know what was going to happen. We kind of thought, are we going to run out of stuff to talk about? And and of course we haven't because there's just always stuff to talk about when it relates to the markets and the economy. And I mean, especially the last guys, these last three years, it's there's something new coming up seemingly every day or week. It seems like so. Yeah, it, it's been a fun process, but it's it it it's it's you put yourself out there, and it's 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 interesting. As a podcast nerd, I wanted to ask a little bit about the behind the scenes stuff. I mean, you guys talk on the podcast about like having sort of a Google Doc, I think, where you come up with, is that how you do it? Do you basically just have, you know, throughout the week, you're putting ideas on a Google Doc and you both sort of just read it in advance and get it, you know, get a feel for the topics and then you talk about them? Yes, we have a bunch of categories. So we'll, we we started with a Google Doc and we have markets and economy and inflation and crypto and 
in individual stocks and, and all this stuff, and we've added those categories. And, and if we see a story or a tweet or a headline or a graph or a data point that we think would be interesting to talk about, we put it in there. And then we kind of, yeah, before we do it, we go through it and we try to rearrange it. And, and that's kind of how we're scrolling through this. And it, and it could be 20 or 30 pages worth of stuff every week. We don't always get to everything, but that, that's kind of how, yeah, that's kind of how we structure it where we just, we're just kind of riffing on, you know, it could be 15, 20, 25 different topics per 45 minute to an hour episode every week. I want to ask you the same question, Justin, asked you about writing, because a lot of people are starting podcasts these days. And I'm, I'm wondering with your experience doing it for five years now, like what are the lessons you would, would sort of teach to somebody who's maybe starting out with a new podcast now? Oh, interesting. I, I do think being yourself is a, is a big part of it. I think, you know, if you listen to all the other podcasts out there these days, you can probably try to copy what someone else is doing. I think you do have to sort of put your own spin on it and do your own thing and not try to be someone else. I, I thought that same thing with, with writing too. A lot of people early on told me with blogging that you have to kind of put your own voice on it. Because I, I asked a few people like before getting into it whether I should do it. And a lot of people said, who are already writing said, well, of course, there's a lot of blogs out there and other people that are already doing this, but you know, they're not you and you have to be you. You can't try to be someone else who's already doing this because they, they can probably be themselves better than you, obviously. So I think personality matters, being yourself, being, like you said, authentic and transparent and being willing to share and be be open a little bit is is probably helpful. I also think you have to do your homework and, and be prepared. Like I said, Michael and I, we're, we're constantly reading and looking at stuff and sharing thoughts and data. And I think if you're not prepared, then that shows up if you haven't really done your homework because it, it shows if you don't know what the hell you're talking about, basically. Just just one more thing on content. Um, sorry, Jack. Um, I wanted to, I think that you guys do a good job of uh, experimenting like with different things. Like the podcast, obviously you've been doing it for a long time, but I know you were doing stuff on Instagram. I don't know if you're doing stuff on TikTok. Obviously the podcast is, you know, big on, on YouTube. Um, but do you envision or see like, sort of the delivery of content sort of changing, like the, like the younger generations that are, you know, on TikTok and their attention spans are like 20 seconds, you know, an hour podcast, you know, 10 years down the road might not, people might not be consuming content that way. So do you have any feelings on like content getting more condensed in a way? I'm thinking like YouTube shorts maybe, or something like that in terms of different delivery. I think it's definitely stereotyping, but if I had to think about it between blogs and podcasts and YouTube, which has kind of been our progression. If I, if I split it up by demographics, this is not perfect, obviously, but the demographics would be, I have a lot of baby boomers who read the blog and I still get people who email me and say, how do I print out this blog? But people who literally still print it out, read it on paper. That that's a big cohort of boomers. Gen X people, I think are probably more apt to do the podcast than, than younger people, millennials or Gen Y are probably more for the YouTube. And obviously there's some, there's some mix there, but uh, that's kind of the, the way it goes, but I, I do think there's probably some room for yeah, yeah, different kind of, of, of stuff. We've actually talked recently about what if we had just sort of an instant reaction, 10 minute podcast where we get out and do it right away. We don't have to have a bunch of editing and done. We, we, we do it right away. We throw it right up and, and just have this more instant reaction as opposed to something that that's, that's longer form. And it takes a little while to get out there. And so I think there's probably room for that. I don't know where else this stuff is is going in the future, but yeah, we're willing to try and experiment. And, and I, YouTube has been a you know we talked about this before we got on and hit record. YouTube has been a surprise to me. That was something that Josh really pushed for a few years ago and said, you know, we need a presence here. There's a lot of young people here who consume all of their content on YouTube. And Michael and I were a little unsure of that, like how that's going to work. And and we started putting our full podcast up on YouTube 
you know, a few years after the podcast started. And we thought at first we just put some clips and thought no one's going to pay attention to this. And everyone was asking on YouTube, why don't you just post the whole podcast here? And we thought, well, no one's going to watch a whole podcast on YouTube. Lo and behold, a lot of people do that. They have a second screen at work or something and they have a podcast YouTube over here and their work over here. And uh, that's just the way some people consume content these days. So I think if you have the ability to reach people in different places, it, it, it certainly helps to sort of, you know, widen that audience base. Yeah. On that, on that quick reaction idea, you know, I think that's a pretty cool idea. Like you guys could do something like if there's just a Fed meeting, you know, you guys could record 10 minutes, like right after the Fed meeting, you know, and put it up right away. And like, you know, that, that might actually be something I think people would engage with. Yeah. And, and keep it short, eight to 10 minutes. I, I think that's something we're going to look into where people's attention spans are, are shortening, you know, by the day, it seems like. I want to shift and talk about some of the stuff you write about on the blog now, because uh, you have this quote on your blog where you said, Albert Einstein once said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. And you know, I'm having trouble right now explaining to a six-year-old what's going on in the economy because, you know, we, we've got very high levels of inflation. We've got a Fed that effectively, I think, is trying to cause, you know, a recession or maybe not trying to cause a recession, but knows they might have to in order to stop the inflation, you know, but then the labor market is still really tight. It just seems like it's a really, really complicated economic situation to understand. So I'm, I'm just wondering what your reaction to it is and maybe how, how you think about explaining what's going on in the economy right now. Well, the Charlie Munger quote was something along the lines of, if you're not confused right now, you don't understand what's going on. And so there, there's so much, I mean, these last three years, it seems like we've been through eight different cycles, right? And people always like to look for analogies to history about this is like the seventies or this is like the nineties or this is like the two, whatever it is. And I just don't think that you can find an analog to today. You can find times that were similar and under certain circumstances, but just the, the pandemic after we already had a 10 year bull market. And then this huge speculative excess after we had the, the, this huge crash. And then now we had this inflation for the highest in 40 years and all this stuff. And it, it's, it really is confusing to me because the, the, the Fed is now trying to push us into a recession potentially to, to calm inflation. And the market is already in the midst of a bear market. And we haven't even technically gone into a recession yet. And so it's you can be pulled in a million different directions right now thinking through what the potential ramifications are and where the market is going to go and what it means. And yes, I, I've been trying, you know, talking this through in the podcast for months and months now, trying to think through what it all means and trying to put it in historical context. And the, the thing, the word I've come come down to is just that it's, it's really hard to find a situation that's like this. And I think this might be one of the few cases we're looking at history might make it even worse for you instead of making it better. Cause I do think history can provide a good context. I like to look at a lot of the long-term stuff on my blog all the time, just to show people, you know, what has happened in the past when something like this has happened before. And it's it's always something in the markets, but this time for sure seems like a, one of the more confusing times that I can recall in my career. How do you think the average investor should look at inflation? You know, it's you're on Twitter like we are, and you know, you'll you'll have some of the smartest people you've ever met, like on both sides of this right now. You'll have people who say like inflation is going to be really, really high for a really long time. This is a massive problem. And then you'll have other people, like I know Mike Green has talked about this, like that, you know, say that like it's already rolling over, you know, like shipping rates and freight are already down. Real estate is rolling over, even if it's not rolling over in the CPI number, like this, this thing is already, you know, coming to an end. Like, how do you think your average investor should kind of think about that when, when there's those major extremes like that? The other weird thing is, is that in the past, there, there wasn't so much data available. Like today, all the macro thinkers, right after the inflation numbers come out, you see a million people dissecting and disseminating this piece of it did this and this piece did this. And if this piece doesn't come down to this and you can look at every day, you can break it up into a million pieces to understand why inflation is doing this. And well, the calculation of this actually means this and the, this is on a lag and this is actually front running. And there's all these different. So, so that makes it even more complicated, I think, because 
you can pull it apart in so many different ways to show whatever you want and have your own confirmation bias. It is interesting how, you know, people think a lot of the longer term stuff that was happening before, you know, we have aging demographics and we have globalization, we have technology and all these things seem like a headwind to inflation over time. But yeah, now we have an energy crisis and we have higher interest rates and we have more government spending and that seems like it could keep it higher. And of course, the Fed is, is fighting as hard as they can now to bring it in and, and bring down inflation. If the Fed is going to raise rates like this and inflation doesn't come down, what does that mean? So I, I wish I had a a good answer here for this. It, it does. It, it is kind of crazy how inflation basically was kind of dead coming into this. The, the, the Fed tried as, tried their mightiest in the 2010s for the whole decade, basically, to bring inflation up, but they couldn't. And then all of a sudden we have this pandemic hit and the government spending hits and we have supply chain issues and the and all this these different waves of covid and and that gives inflation of course it's way higher than they ever ever wanted and it it's it's just interesting how these pivot points happen from stuff that you would never expect and, and could never predict in the, ahead of time funny i don't know if this is true of you as well but i had no idea like we've had such benign inflation like in my whole career like i had no idea what was even in the cpi like if you had tested me on like the percentages that go into the cpi before this whole thing I would have been way, way off. And now I'm thinking about things like owner's equivalent rent and how it's calculated and like getting in all these details. But I had no idea what the CPI, you know, even was before this whole thing. Well, it seems like we all have only enough attention for like one thing at a time. So, uh, you know, remember back after 2008, people were paying attention, like what was it, the dry Baltic index or whatever that, you know, that, that was the harbinger of things to come. And then for a few years, there was the European sovereign debt crisis. And, and and then it's tech stocks and then you know, so we have all these different things and it seems like it's always one thing that we kind of really focus our time and energy on and yeah now of course it's it's inflation and then if inflation does come down then it's it's going to be something else so yeah you're right i i never bothered to put much into it too and now i'm checking the bls data and it, yeah it, it it's kind of it, kind of crazy and all, it also makes you realize how how easy it would be for for people to not be able to predict inflation. Like I, I think, like the Fed themselves has said in this cycle, you know, we still don't know what really causes inflation, right? Like everyone, there's a million different things that probably went into this. You know, you could you could blame again COVID and supply chains and government spending and all this and pent up demand and people being at home and then now they're spending. There's really not one reason for it, but 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 the Fed themselves puts out forecasts on this and they're wildly off on this stuff, right? And they're paying attention to this stuff every single day. So I, I think for the rest of us, it, it's pretty good to understand just how hard it is to forecast stuff like this. It's funny, you know, we've had Colin Roche on the podcast too. I think you've had him on Portfolio Rescue a couple of times as well. And like, we asked him, you know, what causes inflation? And his answer was basically, I have absolutely no idea. And so if somebody who's as smart as him has no idea what causes inflation, then probably nobody has any idea what causes inflation. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's probably true. I think interest rates and inflation are two of the hardest things to predict. And they're two of the biggest inputs into the markets in the economy, especially right now so yeah it, it's 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 just a good reminder that like staying humble is, is probably not a bad place to be most of the time i do wonder this is sort of an aside but i do wonder if we might come up with a better way to calculate inflation out of this because you know you're when, when you're looking at this thing you know like the cpi report coming out i think in a couple of days here and it's like well you know housing is going down now but in the cpi housing is going up and we've got this lagging thing and i wonder if maybe through technology or something maybe they'll come up with you can never calculate true inflation because it's different for every person and it's, it's hard to track but i do wonder if maybe they'll come up with a better way to calculate it, you know, out of this. I think that's the hard part is, is no one would ever be happy with any inflation, that, that number that you come up with. Because if, if you're a person who lives in a city and is renting and you've seen your rent go up, or if you have a, just bought a new car, uh, or, or you have baby formula to buy, whatever it is, if you have a couple inputs in your life that, that are, the prices are going way up, 
you think inflation is out of control. If you don't have that stuff, if you own a house, you lock in a 3% mortgage, uh, you already bought a car a few years ago, you're fine. You don't drive very much. You're not paying high gas prices. You might think, ah, inflation is kind of over, you know, it's overestimated. It's not that bad. So you're right. A lot of it is personal. And so I think whatever they did with the number, someone would find a fault in it. I want to ask you about the pace of change here, because that's something that concerns me a lot that, I, that I've been trying to think through on my own. You know, if you think about just the, how fast bond yields went up or how fast mortgage rates went up, like, I mean, how do you think about putting that into context in terms of like the risks we face because of just how fast this move has been? Well, I think markets have been speeding up for a while now. I think part of it is just the free flow of information and markets became more global and, and something that happens across the world or something that happens here could, could impact, you know, your things around the world. And, and I think social media has sped things up. Like I said, you know, in the past, you know, I, I wrote about 1987 a few years ago and, and a reader wrote back in to me and emailed and said that he didn't know what happened to the stock market until he was driving home and heard it on the radio and, and realized like his retirement portfolio was potentially just, just poof, gone. And, and now we see this stuff happen, you know, as a tick by tick basis, minute by minute basis. And I think it makes it a lot harder for investors to have a long-term mindset because the cycles are happening faster. And I think the, the central banks and the Fed are a big part of this. I think 2008 really brought the Fed to the forefront where they had to step in and do something. And then 2020, I think they're just stuck with the markets for good. And unfortunately, I think that means probably shorter cycles and faster and more boom-bust nature of the markets because it's, it's going to be hard for them to pull their tentacles out of things. And I think that's just going to make it harder for investors to have more of a long-term mindset if we have these cycles that are just happening faster and faster. Yeah, and we've been seeing that as well. I mean, it's, it seems like everything is speeding up in the markets and it'll be interesting to see like going forward if, if that continues or, you know, uh, if maybe things change with that. And, you know, that, that sort of gets into one of the other questions I wanted to ask, which is, you know, the, the bear markets we've seen in the past, you know, several bear markets have all been pretty quick. I mean, 2008, you know, dragged on for a few months, but, you know, 2020 was really fast. And, you know, th those in a historical context are really, really fast bear markets. And, you know, a lot of people have been sort of talking about the 2000 to 2002 period here thinking like what we're seeing now might be more like that. And that's more like a typical bear market. So I'm wondering if you could talk maybe about like what you found in terms of the history of bear markets and how like what we've been seeing recently differs from what bear markets look like historically. Well, I looked at this a, a number of different ways because it, I, I think it's fascinating. So I looked at like the bear market since World War II. So call it since 1945. There've been, I think 13 of them, if you wanna include the, the one right now. And I think the average peak to trough was like 12 months, right? So it takes about a year for stocks to go from top to bottom. And it takes about another... 10 or 11 months to break even and get back to where you were before. So it's like, it's almost two years to go from peak to peak, basically on average. And of course there are ones that are shorter and ones that are longer than that. So yeah, the 2002 is the longest, 2000 to 2002 is the longest one. I think that was like a little over 30 months from peak to trough. So that, that was a long time to bottom. And then a lot of people don't remember this. By the time we got those, those old highs back, it was basically 2007 and then stocks rolled over again, right? So, so that, that was that whole lost decade period where you had two huge crashes in the same decade. But that that's actually not, that's not the norm. So a lot of people are saying that this could be like that, but that that's pretty much an outlier to have it last that long. The only other time that's been longer than that or, or kind of close to that would be like the mid-1970s and the early 1980s, which is the last time the Fed sent us into a bear market uh, where it, you know, it took two years or so to go from peak to trough and back again. So the, the longer bear markets like that one in 2000 to 2002, that's actually pretty rare. Now you could say like, this is the perfect storm for that type of environment. We had a bull market going into this then the pandemic sort of supercharged this. We had the, this, what it felt like in 1999 period where we had all the speculative excess and things going crazy. Now we have inflation. So if, if it's going to happen, maybe this is the period for it. But that type of extended bear market, while it can happen, that, that one is, is, is actually pretty rare. Yeah, I think one of the great things you do looking at this with data is like, 
you, you learn that there are many, many types of bear markets, you know, and, and your, your articles have done a good job showing this. So anybody who's saying like, this is definitely going to be a long drawn out bear market, or this is going to definitely be a shorter bear, you know, no, no one really knows. I mean, you know, all of us like to talk, like we know what we're talking about, but it's, it's good to just look at what's happened historically and say, all right, here's sort of a range of possibilities and no one really knows, you know, we might get any of these. Well, that's the strangest one about this one is coming back to the confusing point. I mean, this this really is a man-made downturn in stocks. Like the, the Fed is telling us, we want the stock market to go down. We're raising interest rates. We're going to make that happen. And the, the fact that it's not like some big catastrophe like we had in 2008, where it was like this financial system excesses that were building for years and years and maybe decades, and it all finally blew up. This is a man-made downturn. And the, if we do go into recession, it's going to be a man-made recession as well. And so... That also means that it might be easier to turn it back and have a man-made recovery if the Fed decides to turn things around and then and then stimulate the economy. So I think that that's the hard part now to handicap is is how far are they going to push? How bad is that going to make things if they potentially break something? And then will they just turn around right away and, and stimulate and that will put an end to things and market will go right back up. So that's the hard part right now is that is that the Fed is so entrenched in all of this and they, they seemingly just won't shut up about it. They're, they all love to talk about it. Uh, you know, there's a new Fed speech every day, it seems like. And I think in some ways they really like the control they have. You know, back in the day, the F the Fed didn't say anything. You know, it, you know they, they were pretty tight-lipped on stuff, even in Greenspan's days, about what they thought about what was going on. And and uh, that's what makes this one so unique, I think, is that the Fed is such a big part of what's going on. Oh, I was listening to someone this morning, and they were, they were talking about all this gridlock in Washington with the elections. It actually puts more power... The Fed's going to be the only player in town because nothing, nothing is going to get done on, on, the, on the fiscal side now. So the monetary side is going to be even, even more important. So it gives, you know, it still continues to put that. I mean, the Fed's a very powerful, obviously, uh, you know, organization, maybe the most powerful in, in the world. Um, but it's just, you know, the, with, with the election results, it makes that sort of shift in power even, even more. And I think that the part of it is, you know, the Fed has been on their own for a lot. Like that, the 2010s, I mentioned the Fed wanted inflation to get higher. They were keeping rates at zero forever and kind of waiting for fiscal policy to step in and help. And it never did. And it took the pandemic to make that happen. And now I don't know, because we got this inflation, if the politicians are going to be shy about using fiscal policy again, if we do get another downturn, or if people are going to be clamoring for those $1,200 checks again. But but right now the, the Fed is, the, the government is kind of it seems like it has said, like, you're kind of on your own. And the Fed, that's why the Fed, I think, is going so hard. One of the reasons is because they're the only ones who are kind of doing anything right now. Because the politicians don't want to be seen as as slowing things down and sending us into a recession, right? They, they, they can't really have that. Neither side wants that. So the Fed is, is kind of on their own as this, like, independent body. And they're the ones who have been kind of left, you know, kind, kind of just floating in the wind. And, and it's like, kind of, you're on your own. Like, you need to do this and take care of it. Because I think they've gotten a lot of blame uh, for what happened because it took them so long to act. But yeah, they're they're on their own basically. I want to ask you about housing because it plays such a huge role in, in everybody's lives. And so you know that that's probably the, one of the biggest topics you'll see. You know, if you go to a cocktail party or something these days, is like everybody's worried about you know getting back to this idea of the magnitude of, of mortgage rate increases. Everybody's worried. What does it mean for the housing market? You know, and you've got the the doom and gloom people out there saying you know this is 2008 again. We got a massive housing collapse coming. And I'm wondering, just when you look at it historically, what, like, what do you think about putting what's going on in housing right now in, in context for people? That's probably my biggest worry about if, if something happens, the Fed could potentially break something because mortgage rates have gone from 3% at the beginning of the year to more than 7% now. That, like, we've never seen 
an increase from that low of a rate to this high of a rate in this fast, especially when you add on the fact that housing prices are up 50% or whatever from you know the beginning of the pandemic. And the problem is housing makes up like 20% of GDP. So if you add in things like construction and lending and loan officers and furniture and all the ancillary costs that go into a house and realtors and all these things, it, it's a huge part of the economy. And I think the Fed, by letting mortgage rates get so high, are effectively just sending that whole industry to a screeching halt. Like there's, you know, no one's going to build a new home right now if mortgages are 7%. There, there will always be people who have to move. But, you know, if you have a 3% mortgage, you're not going to want to leave that and go to a 7% mortgage, you know, unless you really have to because you have to move for family or a job or something. So a lot of people are going to be stuck. And I think that there's just not going to be much activity at all in the housing market. And I think that that's probably my biggest worry right now. Because you're right, that, that's the one thing. Like we, Michael and I always talk about topics that we hit on uh, in our blogs or, or on the podcast in, in the stuff that really can get people to, you know, really give a lot of feedback or get incensed or really into a topic. And housing is one of them because everyone has to live somewhere. So everyone has this experience with this, right? Like not everyone owns stocks, but everyone has to live somewhere, whether that they're renting or buying. And so real estate is the most personal of asset classes. And, and I think screwing with that too much I think could be a mistake because it's such a big part of the economy. I mean, if you want to take the other side of that, you'd say, well, housing prices are up so much. If they drop 10 or 15%, it shouldn't matter that much because so what? But my biggest worry is just that we're not going to build enough houses because the housing industry itself has, has seen so many booms and busts in such a short period of time that they're going to say, all right, you know what? We're, we're backing out of this. this. This is not for us anymore. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see like when sort of the public and the politicians turn on the Fed. And, you know, to, to your point, I mean, that this could be what eventually gets the Fed a lot, a lot more pressure on the Fed is if they start messing with the value of people's houses. You know, if, if you really start to see significant decline in the value of people's houses, that affects everybody in their everyday lives. You might see some more pressure on the Fed, you know, to stop. Yes. And, and, and people who want or need to move are saying, I, I can't I can't afford this. The monthly payments, I think the monthly payments are up like 80 to 100 percent if you include the house price gains and the mortgage rate gains. It just, it doesn't make sense because incomes obviously haven't kept up with those gains and, and just, it makes it untenable for people trying to afford a home. Yeah. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, I'm just, this is like all the other topics we've discussed. Like I'm certainly no expert and you know, it's, it's probably none of us can predict it, but uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a major part of what happens to, you know, to see what, what plays out with housing. Um, I want to shift and ask you about a couple of things, you know, that we look at a lot as quant investors. Um, and, and first I want to ask you about factors. Um, and I just want to get your general idea on like using factors like value in a portfolio, because, you know, you've got of kind of got different camps out there. You've got people who say, you know, indexing is really the way to go for investors. And then you've got other people who say, all right, you know, using things like factors, you can get a little bit of an excess return. You know, obviously you have to be able to stick with them through the ups and downs, but you can. And I'm just wondering, you know, you've, you've talked about like things like value in your blog over the years. And I'm, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts like on factor investing and, and how your average investor should look at it? I've never looked at factors as a way to get alpha. I, I know if you look back at the, at, the, at the research, it shows that certain factors like value or quality or momentum have outperformed the markets over time. The way that I see them is as a form of diversification. And I think the, this period over the last 24 months is a perfect example of it, where I, certain stocks perform better under certain economic environments. And I've written on my blog over the years that it's not a certain, you know, it, it's not the only input, but value stocks tend to do better when inflation is higher rising and interest rates are higher rising. And we just haven't had that environment in a long, long time. So everyone thought, well, value is dead because for 10 or 12 years, growth stocks kind of crushed them. But that was an environment of falling inflation and very low interest rates. And it was a much better setup for growth stocks. And now that we've seen the opposite of that, 
I think owning different stocks and different factors like that can help you in different economic environments. And I think that's the, the, the biggest case for owning different factors in your portfolio is just be, you're diversifying by different market environments and, and, and having a value tilting your portfolio in some ways can help with a situation like this or high quality or dividends or however you want to define it. I think it can help when you have a different market environment that doesn't help with, so I've, I've never been a person who likes to go to extremes and, and I'm going to own all tech stocks or all dividend stocks or all, all value stocks or whatever. I, I like to have a little bit of each because I don't think I have the ability to predict what the future is going to hold. And I don't have the ability to predict which factors or which strategy is going to perform best. And so that's why I think diversification is such a strong tool because it's, it doesn't mean you're going to outperform, but it, it definitely means that eventually you're going to hold the winners depending on the environment. Yeah. That's, that's been one of the biggest lessons of my career, you know, building quant portfolios is, you know, you've kind of explained it in layman's terms, but that's the same thing we kind of look at behind the scenes with quant portfolios is like, I used to be, all right, let's use value. You know, I'm a big believer in value. So I should have this huge weighting to value, but, you know, really like taking a multi-factor approach or, or like putting different things, you know, putting your eggs in different baskets, that tends to be the best thing for everybody, particularly from a behavioral standpoint, because this stuff can be really, really hard to stick with. Like that 10 years of struggling for value, like your average investor is not going to sit through that. So, you know, it, like, like you said, doing a lot of different things is, is probably the way to do it. If you're going to attack the, you know, if you're going to attack investing with factors, especially if your whole portfolio into something that that's why the extremes are such, such killers. Cause no strategy is going to outperform in every and all environment. If there was, if that strategy did exist, all the money would go into it. And then it would probably that, that you know, be arbed away anyway. So I think that's, that's the good lesson is that like, there, there's no investor, or there's no strategy that that's good enough to outperform in every market environment. Uh, the last one I want to ask you about is I want to ask you about trend following because it's something I, th I think you guys do in, in some of your portfolios and it's something we do as well. Um, and, you know, we have we have some challenges with it and it also can have some really, you know, some really good things attached to it. You know, the, the great things are, you know, it reduces drawdowns at a period like this, sometimes significantly. The hard part is it makes someone's portfolio look a lot different than the market. And so there, there can be the cocktail parties where their neighbors making big money in the up markets or, or like in a market that's going back and forth. And you're, you're out of it due to trend. So I'm just wondering what, what your thoughts are in general on trend following. I was pretty late to the trend game. I, I was always a sort of buy and hold boglehead investor from the start. And it, it wasn't until I really got to know people like Meb Faber and Wes Gray and, and some of the research they did and some of the papers they did that trend made a lot more, lot more sense to me. And, and I think the thing that drew me to it wasn't so much uh, the, the strategy itself or the results. It was the behavioral side of things. And I think a, a strategy like trend is something of a behavioral release valve for someone. If you have it as part of your portfolio and you have one of these severe market dislocations that we're going through now, you, you know, that's the kind of thing that it can save you from is, is some of the volatility there. And I think if you have that piece in your portfolio, whatever it is, whatever that other strategy is, if it allows you to keep the rest of your portfolio invested and fully invested and not tinkering with it, I think from your behavioral standpoint, it helps a lot. And I also think the the, the thing that started to click for me with trend is just that it's a way to diversify across market cycles. So it's a, it's a different form of diversification where you're trying to stay invested during the upturn. And I think that's the, the hardest part for a lot of people with a, any sort of hedged strategy. And I had a lot of problems because we in my uh, institutional portfolios were invested in hedge funds back in the day. And my biggest problem with them is that they could never keep up during bull markets. And I think most trend strategies aren't going to keep up fully. But, but these, these hedge funds were, were not even coming close, right? And at least I think a trend strategy can keep you invested for the majority of the upside. With, you know, occasionally you're going to get whipsawed out of these things. But I think that's the thing is that most, most hedged products, you just get crushed during a bull market and you're not going to stick with them when you need to during a bear market. So if you have a, a strategy like trend that can keep you invested for as long as you can until the signals hit, 
I think that's one of the things that was the the most alluring to me is obviously the downside volatility and and keeping in a correction, you know, you know, keeping you a little safer. That makes sense, but also keeping you invested on the upside and then having an out on the other side, even though you're not going to top tick things, just just having some rules in place, you know, you know to help guide you. I, I think that that's the biggest thing for trend for me. Yeah, you know, if, if anybody's going to try to limit losses in a portfolio, you know, the worst case scenario is kind of like, you know, Jack decides when to get in and out of the market and I'm going to you know, try to use my own things, you know, at least it's an automated process. And I think that's a huge benefit of it is, you know, there's rules you follow and your emotions don't get, you know, caught up in everything. Yeah. Cause right now is the worst time to try to guess when should I get back in? Like if you don't have any, if, if you got out good for you, but if you got out because you thought like, oh, I'm, I'm worried about the war or inflation or whatever it is, or valuations, what's going to be your trigger to get back in? And that's why I think rules are so important for something like this. You write about investor behavior and you've mentioned investor behavior um, a couple of times here. And we know that sort of behavior and biases can get us in trouble in investing. And a lot of people, you know, hurt the returns because of um, bad behavior or binary decisions or whatever. But, you know, and you've mentioned diversification, but what else do you guys sort of focus on at Ritholtz to help improve you know, investor behavior and help your clients sort of get the most out of what you get. I do. I'm one of these people who thinks that overall investor behavior has gotten better over time. And I think a lot of the tools that we have and technology has, has, has helped there. I, I think if you would compare investors now versus like the eighties or nineties, I think people are probably a lot better off, but I think the problem for most people comes at the extremes. When you have a situation like late 2020 and early 2021, when, when FOMO was just off the charts, because I'm not invested in this and I'm not invested in that. And look at this scream higher and this person's getting richer. I think at the extremes, it's really difficult for people to keep their heads. Same thing now during a bear market where things are, are going down and, and falling in value. So, so I think that's, that's when you really need the behavioral stuff. And, and I think for most people, it just comes down to simply having a plan in place. And I think for, for regular investors, it's like even a bad plan is better than no plan at all. And so I think for the way that we view it is, is, we can't invest money for a client unless we understand their goals and their circumstances and their needs. And, and so invest like the portfolio is a, is, is obviously a big part of, of any financial plan, but it's not the only part. There's a lot more that goes into it besides the portfolio and what's going on in the markets in, in investing. So, so we think that the financial planning piece is, is a very important part of it too. And understanding how things like tax and estate planning and insurance and all these other things affect you, uh, but I think for most people, it just comes down to having some sort of plan in place. And, and, and I think it, a lot of it comes down to just understanding yourself and knowing which strategy works for you. Cause I, I think perfect is the enemy of good for a lot of people when it comes to investing that they, they think that they have to have the perfect optimized strategy. And like, that's only going to be known with hindsight. Like no one knows what the perfect strategy is going to be going forward because you know, you only know, you only know what was the perfect strategy for the past. And I think that that's the hard part is just keeping a consistent strategy and kind of sticking with it come hell or high water. Yeah. If someone says to you, they have the perfect strategy, you probably want to head for the hills. <laughs> yeah. It's because it, it really doesn't exist, right? We've all seen great back tests that work, look lovely on a spreadsheet and then you put them into re the real world and then they look awful, right? Because it's easy to sort of torture the data and make it say whatever you want it to say in the past. I want to ask you about direct indexing um, because I believe you guys are doing some direct indexing at the firm. Um, for certain clients. And, you know, one of the things that um, I'm seeing more of, I'm sure you've seen it too, is, you know, it's starting to come to the individual level. I think Fidelity, Schwab, and some of these other brokers, you know, are starting to promote direct indexing to individual investors. So, I mean, maybe could you just, um, 
I didn't talk about what direct, direct indexing is and, and how you guys are actually uh, using it for, for your clients. I'm a big fan of direct indexing. We, the people at O'Shaughnessy showed us their, their Canvas platform and we were kind of blown away a few years ago when they showed it to us. I actually think it's probably going to be bigger in the wealth management field for advisors than it is for individuals because there's a lot of circumstantial stuff that goes into it and a lot of planning and heavy lifting ahead of time because you can create these, these unique portfolios based on certain circumstances. So if someone comes to us and they have 80% of their net worth tied up in Google or Amazon shares because they worked there and they got these stock options and they want to sell that down and they need a tax budget. Direct indexing is a great platform for dialing up tax loss harvesting because you're buying the individual shares and you can offset some of the individual companies because in any given year, even if the stock market's up, something like 30 or 40% of the individual stocks are going to be down, even in an up year for the market. And you can kind of use those for tax loss harvesting purposes. And so I think for most individuals, it's probably more of a financial planning tool than it is for something you can just kind of be like a robo-advisor. I think that the tax loss harvesting stuff makes sense for some individuals maybe, but I think knowing what, what our financial advisors are doing with our clients, there's a lot more heavy lifting and financial planning and, and unique circumstances that go into it than just simply checking a few boxes or going through a questionnaire and then filling it out. So I think it's going to be bigger for the wealth management industry than it is for like individuals, something like Vanguard or something. I think I don't think it's going to compete with something like ETFs, but I think in like the RA space, it's going to be huge. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, and it's been around for like 20 years anyways, but it's finally just given with technology and fractional shares and, and the, you know, zero commissions, it's made it feasible. Yeah. The, the zero commission thing was the, was the biggest part is when Robinhood forced everyone into that and it, it made it made more sense where if you're buying hundreds or thousands of securities, it doesn't cost as much anymore. That was the big thing that that really made it feasible and cost effective. Otherwise, it's what's the point of it if you're spending all this money buying and selling shares? Um, just two more closing questions here. One, I guess maybe they're both maybe a little philosophical, but we'll see. Um, so, what do you think in in thinking about your investing career? What do you think you've changed your mind the most on? I was probably when I first started writing my blog. I was probably under the assumption that there is a right and a wrong way to invest for everyone. And, and I can come in and kind of, if, if people just want to learn, it's easy to learn the right way to invest. And I think I've certainly changed my mind on that, that I don't think there's a right or wrong way for everyone. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can succeed in the markets. The, the ways that you fail are probably all fairly similar. You know, you don't have a plan. You, you, you buy when stocks are high and you, you sell when they're low, all these things, behavioral challenges. But I think depending on your personality and the emotional makeup, there, there's probably a lot of different strategies that can succeed as long as you're willing to stick with them. And I don't think that there necessarily has to be a right way or a wrong way for people to invest. And unfortunately, I think one thing I've learned is that for there to be a winner in the markets, there probably has to be a loser too on the other side of those trades. And I think everyone can't really succeed, unfortunately. I think there's always going to be people, that, people there that are going to be making mistakes and not learning the right lessons. And uh, I think that's just how markets work, unfortunately, over time. So we like to ask all of our guests a sort of standard closing question. And that question is, um, and maybe your response that you just gave might be part of this answer, but we'll see is based on uh, your experience in the markets, if you could teach one lesson uh, or impart one piece of wisdom to your average investor, what, what would that be? Yeah, that, that's probably pretty similar, but I, I think there probably is no perfect way to save and invest. There's, there's no top 10 list you can read, or there's no book you can read that's going to like completely change your life and make it easier for you to, to figure it out. I think you just have to kind of pick a strategy and then stick with it come hell or high water because I think one of the hardest parts is these days we, we can always see how other people are saving and investing and this person is investing in this and 
I think it's probably never been a better time to be an individual investor in terms of the strategies and products and tools we have available. I mean, if you think about some of the strategies that are now offered in a tax efficient ETF that were only available to rich individuals or institutions or hedge funds back in the day, and individuals can now use these same strategies at, for pennies on the dollar in terms of costs. That's a great thing. The problem is there's so many choices these days for what you can invest in that it makes it much harder for people to stick with the strategy. So I think for most people, the good strategy you can stick with is vastly superior to the great strategy that you can't stick with. It's just really hard for people to find that one strategy and stick with it. So I think that's that's kind of the, the lesson I've imparted on a lot of people is just if you find a strategy that works for you, don't worry what everyone else is doing and just stick with your own strategy and, and call it a day. Good stuff, Ben. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I've I've enjoyed this conversation. I knew I would. Um, how many miles you going uh, later for for your run? What, what, what are you putting in? Oh, I'm not. I don't. I don't go. <laughs> I don't go no. for a lot of distance. Three or <laughs> nice. four miles. Three or four miles okay. is good enough for me. All right. Well, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, guys. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.